I think the broken part of the system is that there's no incentive for contractors to have to raise the bar. They, they are, it's okay for builders to build to the code. And when it doesn't work, somebody else, after they pay their deductible, is picking up the pieces. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where in just about 30 minutes a week, we uncover the future of building and remodeling. Join us as we explore an industry that is constantly evolving, constantly changing with new products, new practices, and new technologies. From builders to remodelers to executives, as well as those with outside perspectives, each episode of the Construction Disruption Podcast meets with forward thinkers, as well as those in the know in order to share their unique insights. Construction Disruption is created and sponsored by Isaiah Industries, a manufacturer of specialty metal roofing systems and other building materials. My name is Todd Miller uh, with Isaiah Industries, and today our co-host is our sales manager, Seth Heckman. Um, our producer today is Ryan Bell, who's behind the scenes here. Um, Seth, before we get started uh, with our special guest today, who is Derek Hodgins of Construction Science and Engineering in Westminster, South Carolina, um, tell me a little bit about what perhaps you see as a major change confronting the $1.3 trillion construction industry right now, and maybe a way in which you see a company or companies trying to meet that change or Maybe it's a change that you don't see anyone trying to meet at all. I don't know. Share, share a little bit about that. Thanks, Todd. Uh, I think it's really interesting in what we're seeing across the industry uh, that I'm not sure how many people are, are paying much attention to right now is the amount of investment in our industry coming from outside the industry. Uh, whether private equity or otherwise, you know, whether as on the manufacturing level or on the retail level, um, there's a significant amount of in investment coming in. And um, these investors are seeing an opportunity in a profitable business. Uh, they're seeing an opportunity in a industry that is probably primed for disruption and trying to figure out ways to do that. You know, we, we've seen Katera. We've, they've come up on a couple other episodes on the podcast so far. I think we saw numbers like $3.5 billion worth of investment went into that operation that, uh, unfortunately, uh, ended up folding not too long ago. Um, but, you know, uh, we've seen other startups coming out of Silicon Valley and, and other, uh, other places of seeing that we've been building the same way for a long, long time. And uh, there's got to be some improvements, some better ways to be doing that. When we're talking with contractors and paying attention on the contractor level and markets all across the country, we're seeing similar things where huge private equity groups are buying up previously, uh, you know, uh, just individual market or regionally based retail operations. Again, seeing it as a profitable venture and whether keeping those brand names or bundling them all under some national brand, uh, it's definitely significant change rather than the corner, uh, downtown corner type of contractor uh, now turning into these uh, nation nationwide conglomerates. So uh, we'll see if they are willing to put up with some of the headaches that come from on the retail level. And, and yes, it can be profitable, but there's uh, also, you know, when it comes to installation and skilled labor shortage and dealing with homeowners, but um, it's significant change. And so how 
it really comes back to the theme and purpose of construction disruption of, okay, other people are seeing this prime to be disrupted. Um, we need to be thinking in an innovative way, innovative way, a proactive way of opportunities for advancement. Otherwise, people from outside are going to come and eat our lunch. So uh, let those of us who love and are invested in this industry be the ones to innovate rather than bankers or lawyers from hedge funds or hipsters in Silicon Valley. So that's why I'm excited about, you know, what we're doing, these conversations we're having. Very interesting. Good stuff. I remember a couple of years ago, you and I were at the uh, IRE show, the roofing show, and I think I commented to you that where did all the hipsters come from? Because you just didn't see them in our industry five years ago. And, 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 and really, it was cool. It's very neat to see the fresh ideas, the fresh thinking, the outside-the-box thinking, the disruptive thinking um, that some of these folks are bringing into our industry. I mean, we certainly want them to keep uh, the levels of quality, the levels of safety, the levels of caring for people up. Um, but it is neat to see see some of the stuff that's going on. So and pro provides opportunities for all of us, like you said. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, thank you. Um, our guest today on construction disruption is, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Derek Hodgen of Construction Science and Engineering. Uh, Derek's based in Westminster, South Carolina. He's a registered professional engineer, uh, registered in several states. He has a bachelor's degree in civil engineering from North Carolina State University. Um, Derek works a lot with facility con con uh, condition inspections, failure analysis, damage assessments, and forensic engineering investigation of all types of structures. He provides expert, or expert testimony in litigation for uh, deficient construction cases as well as personal injury cases. He's performed engineering assessments of hurricanes, tornado, hail, wind, ice, and fire-related damages for commercial and residential structures. Um, when he's not providing expert engineering or delivering dynamic presentations, uh, Derek enjoys spending time and traveling with his wife and children. Um, I've also heard something about what I think is every young guy's dream, a vintage orange Volkswagen bus someplace there in, in, uh, in your activity as well. So that's cool. But over the years, I've worked with Derek for the design and specification of uh, wind-resistant metal roof systems, and uh, we all also, I remember worked once on failure analysis of a fire-treated lumber uh, project. Um, I know that he loves working with coastal projects of all types and likes diving and all those things. And he's also performed um, analysis of analysis of a lot of uh, EFIS jobs as well as hardboard siding and trim. Um, failures and projects uh, as well. Um, realistically, there's probably no one I know of who's more in the know than Derek uh, when it comes to the performance of building materials and construction practices. Um, this is a guy who has seen systems perform and systems fail, and when they fail, um, he's doggedly determined to figure out why they fail. Um, so that is why I figure he knows the future of construction better than pretty much everyone, um, because He's seen what doesn't work, and he knows what needs to be done differently going forward. So, um, Derek, thank you again for joining us today. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and to learn from you. Um, curious, out of the, the huge 
number of projects and things you've worked with in your 30 plus years and the the various things you've done from failure analysis to engineering on new projects what is it you most enjoy that you get to do uh, i think it's really <laughs> perfect timing for the train to go by that's the first <laughs> question but uh i'd say it's it's opportunity like this to uh to share what i've learned with the industry and and try to help people build better. Um, we have a number of articles that we've written and a lot of seminars that we've delivered and so forth. And even um, you know, in litigation, when I get the opportunity to testify in trial or most often in a deposition, you get to be a teacher of construction issues. And so I get to teach about the subjects that I, I love to uh, look at and investigate, and and I learn if I'm if I'm doing a good job, I'm learning something on most every case that I get uh, engaged with. So. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's got to be pretty fascinating. Uh, the wide variety of projects and things that you run into. I I remember a number of years ago, um, you and I were both looking at a mansard roof failure on an apartment uh, project on Hilton Head Island. I, I think it was a project that the locals affectionately or maybe not affectionately uh, called Stack-A-Shacks. Um, but it was on that project that really you taught me about fire-treated plywood, which I was a little bit familiar with and to run into decking failures. Um, but you also taught me a lot about um, fire-treated dimensional lumber and the failures that occurred with uh, corrosion of fasteners and various fastening plates and things. I'm curious, are, are you still, I, I, just out of my curiosity, are you still seeing failures out there with the fire-treated uh, plywood and lumber or most has most of that kind of worked its way through the system as it is? Well, I'd say most of it's kind of uh, worked itself out. I mean, as, as building failures you know, uh, related to that, product um, are identified and then roof systems replaced. A lot of that stuff has, has gone away. But it's interesting that you asked the question now, <laughs> since I just recently have a new um, two or three cases. Um, there's um, two commercial buildings uh, near the middle of the country and then uh, one down here in the Carolinas that I've been contacted about recently. I think they must be um, older, I'll say, recipes of FRT. That's that's the, um, mm -hmm. there's a certain time period say, from the mid-60s into the late 80s where that product had the most aggressive uh, reaction with wood and caused the most significant amount of strength loss. The, the, uh, the industry rebounded from the troubles that, you know, the problems that we learned about um, through all this litigation and, and failures. And they've not only changed the recipe to be less aggressive in terms of the reactions with the, with the wood, but also be more realistic about strength loss expectations that uh, engineers have to use in our analysis of uh, roof framing systems. Gotcha. So there's always a certain amount of strength loss you kind of expect to happen, but then, of course, the cases where it's way out of proportion and not. Are the current FRT systems, you have pretty good confidence in those? We're not seeing problems or issues? Yes, I've testified uh, many times that you know, current um, FRT products are a viable 
um, product to address um, fire retardancy with no um, expected problems with, with sphinx loss. As you mentioned, you just have to know what to expect from the product and design for that anticipated, you know, less significant strength loss. Gotcha. Interesting. I, I know that, you know, in the construction industry for a number of years now, um, failures with uh, what we call EFAS systems, exterior, ins exterior insulation finishing systems, um, those have been in the news for a few years. And now we're starting to hear a few rumblings of problems with some hardboard siding applications. Um, also, even with the sheathing systems that have the pre-applied underlayment. I'm curious, uh, you know, when you run into such problems with that, how often or, or what percentage of the problems you see seem to be inherent to the product um, compared to misuse or poor application of the product? Is there a distinction there? Oh, absolutely. Um, there, in each case, I mean, I have to. I'm specifically asked to try to delineate, you know, between those issues. And actually, I mean, probably the best way to describe it would be with the what well, is called MDF, medium density fiberboard. Um, manufacturers don't like calling it that because nobody would want to put medium density fiberboard on the outside of their house. So we call it engineered composite siding and engineered composite trim, mm -hmm. but it's still, it's medium density fiberboard and it is vulnerable to moisture problems. And so early on, when I would start seeing problems with those products, I could typically find some manufacturer installation instruction that was not satisfied or not met. And when I'd be asked about, is that product defective? I would be reluctant to identify it as defective because it didn't have a fair chance if it wasn't right. installed properly. Gotcha. Only after I started seeing product failures with no obvious violation of the code or the installation instructions did I come to the opinion that some of these products, particularly earlier on products, um, I considered to be defective. They were just not um, satisfactory for their intended use. There, it would be a wholesale failure, but they, they soak up water, they swell, they delaminate. And some of the earlier products that are no longer on the market um, would just have just a terrible time with typical construction details. Um, the products were just not holding up. We've gotten better, um, but I still think those products are uh, a use with caution type of product and not just follow manufacturer's instructions, but actually follow what we refer to as better or best practices. I uh, I know you and I spoke a, a little bit uh, recently, and you had mentioned to me about you know that importance of going above and beyond maybe what code requires or what minimum requirements are from the manufacturer um, in order to make sure that things are are going to perform. How how does a contractor go about figuring out what those things are that they should do? <laughs> um. Well, um, turns out there might be a book around <laughs> sometime <laughs> that will tell them how to do that. I'm working on a book. To, uh, it's called More Than 100 Ways to Build Better, A Contractor's Field Guide to Better Practices. But right now, um, there is no such comprehensive um, 
document in one place. Um, the General Light Construction has a manual of best practices that they've published around a little early 2000s, I think. But the it's a large format book, not something easily carried into the field and, um, you know, something you have at your office desk, not something, you know, at the site. So that's probably uh, the best one I know of. It addresses many areas of construction. Other than that, you're really looking at a lot of individual um, industry standards. You know, like for roofing, you'd have NRCA. Uh, for metal roofing, you know, um, the Metal Building Manufacturers Association has that good red, you know, design uh, right. manual. You've got, you know, ARMA shingles. Right. So there's all these individual uh, documents that you can that you can look at, but no good, you know, comprehensive book that contractors can turn to. Yeah. Excited for your book. Uh, absolutely. I'm curious, um, just because I think a lot of people listening are going to be really curious with how pop popular, excuse me, those hardboard siding products are becoming. Any quick hit, uh, one, two, three uh, things that you've seen that uh, are ways contractors can go above and beyond for, for installing those in a more foolproof method? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from a siding standpoint um well it doesn't matter i'll just say as a exterior wall standpoint um i teach all the time about the, the four d's of exterior wall design which are drainage uh deflection drying and durability and so drainage or deflection just means um keep the water off the wall you know have a, a significant roof overhang so the wall doesn't get wet once you accept the fact that the wall is going to get wet, um, you want to have the water get off your building as quickly as possible. That's the, the drainage part. Um, so on balconies and flashing, you always want to have a significant slope to manage the water and tell it where to go. And that's away from the building. And then the third, you know, drying is like for a for a siding application, that would be putting in a batten system or some type of a, a decoupling device to keep the siding off of your WRB or your um, wall sheathing. So you want to have you want the water to have the easiest path so that it can fall out from behind the siding. You can imagine when you have an intimate exterior wall with say seven sixteenths inch OSB some engineered WRB, and then the siding intimately attached. Every one of those attachment points is a dam mm. that is going to restrict the water from migrating down the wall due to gravity. Sure. And so, and, and the siding has some absorptive property that it's going to soak up some water and hold the water against the WRB. And so those are points. They might not result in significant rot or damage, but they're points where the water is held in the wall against some moisture sensitive products and you can have localized damage. The last one is uh, durable. And that just means, you know, the wall is going to get wet. You're going to try to exit the water as quickly as possible, but everything that the water touches along its path to get off of your building needs to be durable. And so a good example is medium density fiberboard 
is not necessarily durable, particularly the trim products. You know, the um, manufacturer would have some unreasonable statement in their instructions to say, um, you know, don't let the trim get wet. <laughs> it's, it's on the outside of a building and typical consumption practices, it's going to get wet. The trick is don't let it stay wet. Um, you need to seal the cut ends of the trim. They don't require that. Most of the time they, you know, you can have a butt joint with the trim and then just paint, you know, just the exposed surfaces. You want to make sure those concealed cuts are sealed so you don't get water wicking into those joints. That's where it swells up and causes problems. So there's certainly some some tricks to um, make it last longer than it would if you just followed the code and the manufacturer instructions. You know, this is the perfect example of the bigger picture conversation you're you're wanting to get in with Derek of going above and beyond because we're selling, you know, six figure projects of hardboard siding out there. And uh, your butt joints on your trim could bring everything down a few years from now. Yeah. Interesting. Are there any other recent, more recent products or practices you're seeing fairly new to the scene um, that you have concerns about or maybe are already seeing issues with? And again, maybe it's because they're particularly vulnerable to not being installed right. But just curious if there's anything you see out there people should be keeping their eyes on. Well, there are. Um, and I would I would kind of lump them into this category of what I call silver bullet kind of products. And, and it's always this, what happens over the, over the course of my career, whenever we try to make things faster or cheaper and we combine products together, um, you know, you're going to compromise in some way. And um, in the past, uh, early stucco days, I remember paperback laugh, you know, instead of going up the wall, with a nice, you know, heavy 30-pound asphalt-saturated felt, and then going up the wall again with a nice, you know, uh, self-furring lath, and then doing the stucco um, paperback lath was this one-step, you know, uh, product where you had a thin paper over some pretty thin lath, and both of those, both of those components were lesser components. That was one problem. I mean, the, that paper by itself was not as moisture resistant as a, as a piece of 30 pound felt, or it used to be 30 pound felt, number 30 felt, I guess now. But um, the bigger problem with that was instead of lapping everything in a sequence like they would do when they would go up, go up the wall previously, when you've got the two components together, you had to separate the paper from the lath, and you'd have to have a paper to paper lap and then a laugh to laugh lap that that makes sense and they, and they mm -hmm. didn't do that they would go up the wall and the paper from the next course would partially cover the laugh, laugh. of the previous course and you'd see these cracks develop and then you, when you when you when you figure it out and you're in the field you could measure these linear horizontal cracks every 27 and a half inches you knew before you even did your destructive test it was going to be paperback lap with an incorrect lap. I mean, so as an, an old example, I'd say a, a current example of a silver bullet product or some of these exterior wall sheathing products with an integral moisture protection layer with the attempt to exclude the need for 
a WRB. And I would just say the idea, I, I'm intrigued. I think it, it, it's, it's good to have a more moisture resistant exterior wall sheeting, but I would caution against using those products in the way that they're marketed to be used all by themselves with simply just taping joints. Um, in addition to a WRB, you could create a more robust, you know, durable wall system, but all by themselves and to count on tapes um, to keep the water out. And the other thing I've, I've, I'm dealing with right now on a case is whenever that sheathing is penetrated, you know, beyond the surface, and say you have a, an overdriven nail, and the face of that sheathing is the drainage plane, every time that there's a pocket, you know, for the water to fall into, it can fall into those pockets. And you could have corrosion of the uh, nail head. You could, the, if the nail is overdriven enough, you might have a path for water to penetrate and cause damage to the wall sheathing. So there's, there's definitely some cautionary, you know, things that you need to consider when using those products and still try to incorporate better practices and just know the limitations. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So I, I, when I think of you out on a forensic investigation of a failure or something, I, I think of you as being the Sherlock Holmes of construction or something. But I, I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the steps you take when you're doing an investigation like that? I, I remember, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, things when we were on that project with the FRT um, product, you had sent some things off to Clemson, I think, for testing. But, you know, what are some of the typical things that, that you do on investigations? Well, it's hard to say just one particular, like, series or yeah. uh, the steps that we're taking because um, every case is going to be unique in terms of what my role is, uh, what I'm asked to do. You know what the problem is. What I'm, you know, being asked to investigate. So, you know, obviously on the defense side, um, I could be a expert witness for the general contractor, and there's claims made about the performance of a building, and I would need to respond to every single claim that's being made. Um, or if I'm a developer, or perhaps an architect, um, if I'm a subcontractor and I'm just the siding installer, I'm just the window installer, I'm just the uh, roofer, you know, it depends on, you know, what my role is, what the steps sure. are to be taken. But I guess the, the most basic way I could say is to understand the allegations that are being made, you know, what the performance issues are. Um, and then you compare the as-built conditions with what we call collectively as the contractor's instructions, which would be the building code, the plans and specs, the manufacturer's instructions, and accepted industry standards. Whatever's in print at the time of the construction that was available to the contractor to follow, mm -hmm. you know, and the general rule of thumb is, you know, the most stringent applies, how does the as-built condition deviate from those instructions. And is that deviation, is that the proximate cause of the performance problem or the failure or the, or the damage? Gotcha. Interesting. Switching gears a little bit. Um, this is kind of a painful thing still for us to even think about because it's also fresh in our minds, but um, the recent collapse of the Surfside condominium uh, 
project and, and building is certainly going to go down as one of our country's most tragic um, building failures. Um, certainly a difficult example of what can go wrong and why good design and maintenance are critical. I'm curious if you have any feedback yet on, you know, what might have happened there. And, and also curious, I mean, do you think that our country has a lot of potential projects that, you know, could could result in something similar to that? Or or do you think that hopefully will will be go down as being a pretty unique situation? Well, I certainly hope it's uh, not going to be a pattern. You know, it's certainly a, a sad situation and it's a, it's a, it's a big loss. I, I do, I'm not engaged um, currently on that project. I do have some colleagues um, that are um, familiar with, with some of the issues. So, I think if we talk, you know, just from the generic sense of what is has been reported about that case, um, one theme that I'm probably the most familiar with is doing uh, a property condition assessment um, or some type of um, engagement with an HOA on an oceanfront condominium of you know, multiple stories of concrete finding water intrusion issues, corroded rebar, necessary repairs that could lead, you know, if not corrected, could lead to structural, you know, compromise. Um, but then, you know, once you write the report and you are making these recommendations, unless there's an immediate uh, concern, I mean, you have a duty as an engineer to protect the welfare and safety of the public. I, I would have to report something to the, the local authority having jurisdiction into the HOA to shut a building down if I had a, the highest level of concern. But if it's just normal, you know, things that can still be repaired and the building can be, continue to be occupied, you're, you're, you're just providing a report to educate the HOA on what repairs are needed, but you can't force them to spend money. And, and the problem is, you know, many times our reports are recommending multi-million dollar concrete repairs. And that's a difficult thing for some HOAs to swallow, you know, and um, they're not quick to, you know, either they've got the proper reserves in place and they can absorb a, a decent sized project or they're going to have to assess themselves to come up with an adequate. Well, certainly tragic, that's for sure. So I, I'm curious if there's any, if there's a young person out there um, just maybe interested in construction or engineering or building science, um, what advice would you give to them maybe as fields that would be good to go into going forward or just things to, to pay attention to or think about as they kind of plan out their career path? Well, I'm pretty biased, but I would highly recommend forensic <laughs> engineering mm -hmm. because... It teaches you uh, probably the, the, the quickest and best, it's probably the most efficient way to uh, learn, you know, what works and what doesn't. Even if you didn't make a, a full career out of doing forensic works, forensic work or investigations, if you spent a year or two doing this type of activity before you became a designer, your designs would be so much uh, more thoughtful about um, – you know, what to expect and, and things to kind of safeguard your design against. 
you know, and that's why I'm not the most efficient designer because I, I'm probably a little more on the anal side of yeah. you know, getting everything exactly the way I, I want. And I'll just say this, I know this is, I'm in a special situation, but I don't put my designs out to bid um, to contractors. I pre-select and pre-qualify a small number of uh, both manufacturers and contractors for my work. And so I don't think everybody has that luxury, but um, if I'm going to be the designer, uh, I try to um, help the owner find just a few contractors to um, to submit our, our design to for estimating our bidding purposes. You know, I think that context that you're seeing, uh, that you're talking about, seeing the real world application after the years out in the field and what the result has been, you know, that was something I picked up on your conversation earlier about the integrated lath and paper and uh, the other examples you gave that the uh, the manufacturer had designed this product and, and given explicit instructions for how it was to be installed to avoid that issue. And, you know, ultimately, though, out in the field, it wasn't being done that way. And it doesn't sound like something egregious or something uh, horribly, a, a horrible dereliction of duty on the contractor's part. That's just how it ended up manifesting in the field and some real world considerations. You need to have kind of both sides of that coin and understand how it's going to flow all the way through. And I think that's something for all of us to keep in mind, especially, you know, it keeps coming up on every episode of, of construction disruption, skilled labor shortage, you know, pressed for time, trying to get things done, keeping, keeping that context of every step through the process and, and what that's going to mean for the building owner ultimately. You know, one of, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was um, the fact that, you know, maybe someone coming out of college would go into forensics first and then design. I would have almost guessed it would have to be the other way, that you have to start in design and go into forensics, you know, later if you wanted to. But um, that certainly makes a lot more sense, and I can see how that would make for a much more thoughtful designer if you spent some time on for in forensics first. Very interesting. Well, I guess I should clarify and say you, you would be able to do forensic investigations um, right out of school, kind of as okay. uh, an apprentice or a, a mentee, mentor program. You're not going to probably be testifying, you know, in a trial or a, a deposition as the subject matter expert. But certainly, I mean, we, we've had a pretty active engineering co-op program at our firm. And I mean, the kids that come through here are just blown away by how much you know goes into uh, an investigation and a report, and how many things are just overlooked, you know, in construction. It's exactly what we were just talking about. Have the instructions at the job site is <laughs> a pretty basic thing, and have it in the language of the person who's doing the work that they can understand it, and um, make sure that. It's provided to every person that's doing the work. And there's some example of a proper installation, whether it's a mock-up or the first you know, window install or the, the first um, area of, of one type or aspect of the work is, is, is there as an example that other the contractors can follow throughout the course of the project instead of having everybody kind of doing their own, own thing. There's some, there's some pretty basic stuff that we could do to, improve our 
work habits that um, just aren't being done. I think you were right when you said it just seems like it's a schedule and budget. Those are the two driving factors. How fast can we do it and make a profit? Unfortunately, I guess depends on how you look at it. I mean, good, good for me that we, we mess things up enough that I have more than enough work, but it's kind of sad that we can't slow down and, um, you know, follow instructions and, and build things a little bit better. I know on the roofing side of things, um, you know, I'm seeing a few large national roofing companies that really have what I think are tremendously good training programs and and really are investing a lot uh, in their teams. Also on the roofing side, uh, National Roofing Contractors Association has started their pro certification um, program, which I think is very promising as well. Um, in general, though, I mean, with the labor shortage that we are fighting in the construction industry, um, do you generally think the quality of, of work is going up or down or just kind of riding a wave where it generally stays about the same over time? I feel like um, things are, are taking a turn for the worse. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, I don't see things now. I don't want to be the, the bad guy. I, I, right. I have a very skewed perspective. Nobody calls me and says, Hey, come and look at my building that works. It's, it's <laughs> so all great. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All, all I'm looking at is stuff that's got a problem. So yeah. keep that in mind when, you, when I'm talking. Is that all I'm seeing is the bad examples? But I will just say this: when I first started doing this 30 years ago, it, it would be people making mistakes because they didn't know any better. Um, because, I mean, it was just it was just things just didn't work out, and it was unfortunate. And you know, there's a performance problem. Now it seems like, and I don't want to say this is throughout the industry it just seems like we're so driven on money and and schedules that there is just egregious i mean the the examples of the of the stuff i could show you and and how bad it is it's just it just blows me away i mean still and that's hard to surprise me anymore but i have a case i just we just settled on a mid-rise wood frame uh, apartment building where the framer goofed up the framing and, and the framing had uh, lateral offsets in the wall framing that were between one and two inches. Right. And wow. so somehow, somehow the framer thinks that's okay. And he leaves the job as if he's done and he's satisfied with the work he just delivered to the general contractor. The next guy comes and he puts his WRB over this completely uneven wall and doesn't say to the general contractor, Hey, um, you're not ready for me to put my work on yet because this wall is out of plumb. It has these offsets. So now he accepts the unacceptable conditions that were presented to him and proceeded to do his work without correct, without any correction. Then the um, the siding guy comes. <laughs> He's gonna put his siding on, and they make a they put this this fiber cement board panel over this huge void with no support. And then so the, the, the symptom later when I was looking at it, it was a huge crack in the wall because there was no support behind the wall. I actually missed a step. There was some, there was, it was an intersection with a balcony and there were, there was an area where some self-adhered flashing was supposed to go around this balcony and, and uh, cover some of the framing. There was missing wall sheathing 
and the guy with the self-adhered flashing put the the self-adhered flashing over the wall sheathing onto the studs where there was no wall sheathing. So there's like three or four subcontractors each visited the site, saw the poor work of the of the previous guy, did their work and left. And, and it's like the, the, the what we're accepting, you know, is just unbelievable. You know, that that's okay to to not do a good job. You've mentioned it a few times and, you know, that example is on the most egregious end of it. But um, and I I got a little heads up on your and Todd's conversation earlier, but you using this phrase building better. Um, But when Todd was giving me a heads up, I was surprised that, you know, for you, that includes building better even above building code in in any given area uh, for the most part. So, um, you know, we. We talk, we hear contractors all the time critiquing our installation instructions, talking about other manufacturers. I have my own way of doing this and doing it better and, and them wanting to share those tips and tricks. But at least in the conversations I'm having, building code is just about gospel, especially when we're seeing seeing and uh, it just continue to become more stringent and, and have higher bars that are supposed to be met. Um, but if you could talk a little bit more about that and, and your perspective on that, because I think it's important to context to keep in mind. Well, I guess we should have another conversation <laughs> sometime and you can tell me how the building code is raising the bar. Um, I testify all the time that the building code is the absolute worst building that you can build legally and get away with it. It's the least you can do. It's the bare minimum. It's the floor. You should never aspire to be at the floor. You should always aspire to be uh, above that. And it's it's just meeting the code that is uh, resulting in these performance problems. Um, and then when there's, there's, there's cases where you can actually meet the code and walk away and think that you've done okay, but then still have you know, durability issues. I mean, just because flashing is installed, if it's not installed with a slope a more generous lap with some butyl sealant in between and supported, uh, it's not going to work long term. And so the code has just the most basic requirements um, that, like I said, if it's just the code that's, that we're making the goal, we're always going to have problems. So um, that's why I think – and I, I try to avoid the term best practices because that's a uh, – a moving target. I mean, you know, what's the best practice today might be something different, you know, uh, next week or next year, but um, better practices than um, what the code requires. And, you know, in the IBC on, you know, commercial projects that we get involved with, that's a performance-based code. It doesn't, it doesn't provide you or the contractor with the means and methods by which you accomplish this durability intent uh, or the exterior walls shall provide weather protection. I mean, that's that's the that's the requirement. That's the performance requirement. But it doesn't tell you how to flash and how to integrate WRBs and waterproofing and balcony slopes and you know all this other stuff. So it's the, it starts at the design level, but it's got to be communicated. The designers really need to design things that are above the code. You know, to to kind of initiate this movement toward building things that are going to actually last a while. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know that, you know, we as a 
manufacturer, um, you know, really have some intense, detailed instructions on how to to install our products. Well, obviously, none of that stuff is determined by building code, but we see it as our responsibility as a manufacturer to document and teach and train um, the, you know, absolute most that we know to do. And you're right, best is always a moving target. Um, but, you know, we try to teach and train the best that uh, we possibly know today. And um, yet we still, you know, see people a lot of times, as we we're saying, driven by uh, either lack of training uh, or driven by trying to uh, save a few bucks, um, not not hitting those levels, that's for sure. Yeah. What are some of the things, you know, as we look forward at construction, you know, over the next 20 years, 25 years, um, what are some of the things you see as primary driving factors um, that will help force us to be better and to do better at what we're doing? And that's kind of a nebulous question, I understand, as I ask it. But I'm just kind of curious. I mean, what is it that you do think will um, force um, designers, builders, um, everyone, the trades to, to be better? Well, again, you know, just keep in mind that I have a, a unique perspective of uh, looking at just failures and, mo- and, and most often, in the context of litigation, you know, where I'm dealing with attorneys and insurance companies and so forth. And so right now, I think the broken part of the system is that there's no incentive monetarily for contractors to have to raise the bar. They, they are, it's okay for designers to just design to the code, builders to build to the code, and the and when it doesn't work, somebody else, after they pay their deductible, is picking up the pieces and paying the multi-million dollar claims. And so until you can incentivize you know, designers and contractors to raise the bar, and maybe there's um, a program like, if you're familiar, IBHS, the Institute for Building and Home Safety has the Fortified sure. program. And so if you're a homeowner, and you meet these higher standards, you get an insurance rebate. You know, if there's if there's a way that you can incentivize a contractor or a designer to say, hey, if, if you would put a drainage mat, you know, behind your siding or you know, decouple your wall so you've got better drainage, if you can show us you're using a half inch per foot slope on your roof instead of a quarter inch per foot slope, so you don't have a predictable ponding problem. <laughs> That's another discussion we can have <laughs> later. Yeah, why yeah. a quarter inch per foot is not a good idea. Um, you know, maybe there's some kind of way you can get some points or some uh, um, benefit out of a better design. Um, I don't know the answers. I just, I just know that there's got to be a way that each of us in the industry have a little bit more skin in the game or a, um, a consequence if we continue to build things that are not working or not durable. You know, we don't want to eliminate all those. <laughs> so, so I've got some stuff to look at, but you know, we've right. got to do, we've got to do a little bit better and make things last so that we're not having to replace, um, you know, building so quickly. And I think another thing like you were talking about with, um, the Florida situation, you know, it's not completely like, I don't want to talk about politics, but I mean, our infrastructure, uh, I used to do a lot more, uh, more civil 
type uh, engineering work, and I, and I was a mayor for a while. I know all about having to replace roads and water supply lines and sewer lines and electrical distribution. And, and there, we just have an aging, you know, um, infrastructure and in the, in the building, uh, our, our building inventory is in a similar state. And, you know, we've got some of those uh, facade inspection programs from, you know, the buildings with the steel and the masonry from the, 20s to 40s and some of these urban areas like Boston and New York have those facade inspection ordinances. You know, maybe that's going to be something that comes out of this uh, Florida situation is um, if a ocean, if a condo is reinforced concrete and it's within so many, you know, feet or miles from the, from the open hurricane coastline, maybe there's a certain frequency of property condition you know, evaluation that has to be done to make sure we we're on top of the maintenance and the repairs that are needed. So we don't have another disaster. Yeah. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you. We've, uh, it's been great, uh, sharing and, and talking today and catching up a bit. Is there anything we haven't covered that maybe you were hoping we'd cover today? Um, no, I think we've hit, hit the highlights, but, um, I mean, certainly there's there's lots to talk about. So if there's you know if you have other subjects that you want to uh, revisit sometime, I'm happy to to join you again and we can hone in on you know just roofs or just windows or just walls or just balconies. I mean, take your pick. I, I'm, it's a there's a long track record. That'd be a really good idea. We will have to do that. Um, we'll, we will do that in future episodes and come back to you a few times. And I like that idea of just, you know, focusing on particular areas and talking more in depth. And and reminds me a little bit of the, the JLC approach, too. I'm glad you mentioned them because I agree they, they do some good good work. So And very much looking forward to your book, um, 100 Ways to Build Better. Uh, I think that's awesome. And, and uh, I really was serious uh, when I mentioned earlier to you when we were talking that uh, that'd be a great thing for us to be able to buy and give to our customers as a Christmas gift or something once it's available. So uh, sounds fantastic. Well... Thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Um, how would people get in touch with you if they need to get in touch with you for some reason? Um, probably the best way would just be my uh, email, which is just my name, Derek, D-E-R-E-K, Hodgin, H-O-D-G-I-N, at constructionscience.org, O-R-G. Okay, great. And folks are always welcome to contact me, and I'll be happy to make the introduction to to you as well, Derek, uh, also. So thank you again um, for spending time with us. It's been very interesting, and you always have some uh, great stories, and uh, we will get together again uh, soon as well. So it was great spending some time with Derek. I mean, I think it's really interesting um, the types of projects and types of analysis that he gets into. And uh, interesting, too, where he says, you know, I want everything to get better, but not too good because then I won't have anything to do. And it makes some sense. But um, I just, you know, I've been involved with some things with him over the years. And um, he's so scientific in his approach and so exacting in his approach. And, you know, it really goes back to something we've talked about before here on construction disruption is that importance of of health and safety. And, and I think he uh, wears that 
very close to his heart and uh, very important to him. And so one of the things he was describing to us was a wall failure, and he was talking about how the building got framed wrong, and then every step of the way, the next trade came in and just covered it up, even though it messed up what they were doing too. And, you know, it got me to thinking, and I think you and I both ran into this before, um, Every one of those trades would have said, if you would have asked them, well, why in the world didn't you say something? They would have said, well, I wouldn't have gotten paid. I, it would have delayed everything. And so I think that's pretty interesting to think about how the dollars drives things. But then at the end, and I'm curious, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about what this could look like. Um, but, I th- you know, there at the end, Derek comes back and says, well, one of the ways to fix all of this would be to give monetary uh, incentive for better design, better building, better trades, all that type of stuff. Um, I wonder what that would look like, though. Hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely interesting perspective. And Derek is un- sees the dark underbelly of construction more than most of us. Or like he said, that's that's what he's seeing most of the time. And you know, don't want to make it sound like we're just ragging on con- the contractor at the at. Uh, in their role in some of these failures. There's plenty of product failures on the manufacturing end of products that never should have gone to market either. And kind of like what we talked about, like with some of the the exterior sheeting with the integrated um, uh, underlayment or, or house wrap, uh, an overdriven nail uh, caused a failure. So yes, the contractor was the one that hammered the nail, but there's going to be overdriven nails in uh, most applications. So just understanding what the real world application is going to be in. You know, it's not that the contractor needed to get paid at the expense of the homeowner and and looking for any opportunity to get extra money. It's he had shown up to that job. That's the job he was going to install that day. And he had another job to install the next day. And when with the labor shortage, we talk about all the time, there's right now we're dealing with a finite amount of install capacity and they're having to make the most of it. So definitely it's going to be interesting. I think, um, you know, we were talking a little bit at the end of our conversation. Uh, Derek alluded to the role of insurance in the process, and a lot of times insurance is paying for uh, some of these, uh, you know, the one footing the bill for these failures. Uh, they're getting tired of footing the bill. We're seeing it in our residential space frequently of dramatically increasing premiums, increasing deductibles up to two, three, four percent of home value in very high home value areas. Mm-hmm. Um, name storm exclusions, talking with our con- uh, d- customer down in uh, Louisiana last week where they had a major hurricane last year, but only a small percentage of his, his business over the last year has been paid for by insurance because name storm exclusions uh, meant that homeowners were left still paying. So insurance getting out of the business of paying for construction projects, you know, that could be the first uh, domino here of forcing everyone, uh, end consumer driving the the motivation up that I only want to have to pay for this once too. What yeah. are the products? What Who are the contractors I can trust to do that? What are the products I can trust to be installed to accomplish that? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, really what it's going to take is it's going to take a commitment to quality every step of the way. And, you know, as I listen to Derek and think about this, and I think about the onus on us as a manufacturer and other manufacturers to not only produce great products, but to also produce and provide great training on how our products to be used and installed. But then it's every step 
from there, I mean, it's the design, it's the trades, it's the contractors, the GC. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, the stakes are high. Even the property owner needs to keep an eye on things and, and be able to watch things as well. And as I think about young folks out there getting involved in construction, one of the things that kept popping up as Derek was talking was quality could be the disruptor. I mean, that could truly be a thing that disrupted the industry. You know, perhaps you as a builder in your local market or you as a tradesperson in your local market, if you really, really make quality and training and a firm commitment to that, um, the state of the industry is such that could be a disruptor. The bar is low enough that there's plenty of space to come in above it and uh, probably name your price and have plenty of work. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of sad we're at that point, but that is the reality, and that's the opportunity that's out there. So, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Seth. Um, another great episode of Construction Disruption, and to all of our listeners, um, thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of Construction Disruption uh, with special guest Derek Hodgen uh, uh, from Westminster, South Carolina. Derek is always, um, I think, one of the most informative and interesting people I get the opportunity to speak to. Um, I encourage everyone to watch for future episodes of our podcast. Um, have lots of other great guests coming up, and I know we'll be talking to Derek again as well. Um, until then, I encourage everybody, um, do what you can, change the world for someone, make them smile, bring them encouragement, bring them hope. Um, those are some of the most powerful things that we can do to change the world one interaction at a time. So I encourage us all in that area. Um, God bless, take care, and this is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption.